angry is not an emotion that I felt with my child. It was such sadness and um, just pain because you don't want your child suffering and there's nothing that you can do to help them. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Good day and welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast here at the Plugin Media Network Studios. Uh, this season is brought to you by Nicole Davis Real Estate. Uh, if you're in the market to buy or sell, Nicole Davis Real Estate. As usual, I'm sitting here with uh, my homeboy, Ryan. Good day, Rick. Thank you for that introduction. We like paper, rock, scissors for who had to do the intro. Yeah, you've nailed it. My last three were garbage. Yeah, we had to do like, on you. We had to do like three takes. That's right. You need to like practice in the bathroom before we start. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so anyway, we're idiots. Um, our guest today is, uh, is a pretty cool lady. Um, I've had the... It seems like every time we introduce guests, like, you know, it's somebody that we recently met and they're mm-hmm. super awesome and it seems to be a bit redundant, but uh, such is the life that we live now and uh, the networks that we keep. We keep getting introduced to pretty amazing people. So uh, this lady, I think the first time I met her was at a conference, the Terminator conference, I believe, um, the Terminator Foundation conference that I was asked to be a speaker at on a panel. And... um fortunately slash unfortunately for our guest she was stuck at a table with me so um she got to know us whether she wanted to or not um so with that uh miss miss priya if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and and uh who you are and what you do sure so uh my name is priya reno uh i live in calgary And for the last uh, 15 months or so, I've been working as the Chief Administrative Officer at Simon House Recovery Center, which is a residential addictions treatment center for men at the moment. And I say at the moment because we have plans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seems like everybody's got plans. Be a little more inclusive, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. So So that's what I've been doing. Awesome. So, um... I guess, you know, as per our normal sequence of events, we kind of ask you to tell a little bit of your story and what got you um, so so passionately involved in this. And this is pretty cool for me because usually when we, we have guests, I kind of know the story. I know the background, but I've I've really got like two briefing notes on you and that's about it. So I'm learning this for the first time as well. All right. Okay. So um, how did I end up here? That is a story. Uh, and it started probably, it started about 13 years ago. So I often say to people that, um, you know, I didn't grow up in addiction. It, addiction was something that, um, you know, I wasn't familiar with at all. Um, however, from the time that I was about seven years old, uh, my parents and I uh, immigrated to Canada. And then my father being an engineer, we ended up in Fort McMurray. And that's where I went to school and went to high school. And as I reflect back, I realized that um, addiction was all around me, actually. And I just didn't realize it and had a lot of judgments 
about um, what I saw. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting that fast forward into my adulthood that, uh, and with my children, that I end up having to um, deal with addiction head on. Uh, and it was uh, devastating, actually, because I, you know, when it, when we started down this path, so I have uh, five children, three uh, that I birthed and two that I raised uh, with my second husband, uh, who's a widower. And uh, my oldest is a son, and then we have four girls. And the two older girls are the ones that um, suffer with this disease of addiction. It started with my older daughter at about 15, um, lots of anxiety, bullying at school, um, just different thing, and lots of counseling, trying to figure out, you know, uh, what was happening. And she started, um, I think it, it was self-medicating through drinking, and then that progressed to other um, drugs. And, you know, we've had episodes. Um, so during this time, my first husband and I had already separated, which was fairly amicable. And it had been like two years post that. So when this is happening, I'm, I'm not only trying to deal with my daughter, but also with my ex-husband who um, has a different perspective on what was going on with the girls. Um, we've had bouts with my oldest. We had bouts with um, the children's hospital, the psychiatric ward. And, you know, what I realized was it's really hard to navigate this system when you have a child that is suffering and it is essentially out of control. Um, the healthcare system, the psychiatrists medicated her. And uh, what happened was she would just, you know, whatever the medication was that she was on, antidepressives, they, she started to rage. And um, it, was, it was a lot of crazy making. And then on the heels of, of my older daughter, I mean, I ended up um, sending her to Edmonton to live with my parents. Uh, she went to school. She had uh, weekly counseling sessions there, everything, you know, just to get her out of the environment. And it settled down. She graduated. Um, she still had bouts with addiction, but she's in long-term recovery now and doing very, very well. But on the heels of, of that happening, my uh, younger daughter, who's two years younger than her sister, started uh, down this path. And she was about 14, um, going through puberty, all these things. So I didn't know if it was addiction because with my older daughter, I still didn't um, really associate what was going on with her with addiction. I associated it with there was a mental health uh, crisis. We're managing it. She's getting counseling. Um, you know, she didn't receive any kind of addiction treatment or anything like that. And she managed to um, regulate. It took a while, but she did manage to regulate. It wasn't until my youngest daughter started going through this that I, I thought, well, what's going on with her? Is this, is this rebellion? Is this normal? And, uh, you know, it was the summer of her between grade eight and grade nine when she just didn't come home. And at 14, you know, almost 15 years old, you don't come home. 
that's not normal. So that started phone calls to the police, P-chat orders, ADAC, and Viros was the first kind of treatment program that she was in. And then at 15, I um, we went through ARC. ARC was, um, you know, that was pretty intense. <laughs> uh, and she was in there for almost 10 months. Can you just, sorry, uh, can you just talk a little bit about what ARC is? I know that probably yeah, most sure. people So don't. ARC, uh, the acronym is the Alberta Adolescent uh, Recovery Centre. It is an intense uh, addictions treatment um, facility that not only uh, treats the child, they, they take children up to 21, I think, uh, but it's also very intensive for the families. So when you are in ARC, you are expected uh, as a family member to, uh, you, there are meetings that you attend, you're expected to open up your house as a recovery house and take children into your house. Um, so you, you have children almost every day of the week, you're feeding them on weekends, uh, you're getting permissions to go on outings, um, and it becomes your life. And with ARC, you, you know, the families are also um, assigned counselors. And that's where I was introduced to the 12 steps and Al-Anon. Um, and what those are, you know, with addiction for people that don't know, I'm sure they do, but the 12 steps, um, I call them the 12 steps of living, but those same steps that, um, people that suffer from addiction, uh, learn and, um, becomes part of their recovery journey. It's the same for people who love those that suffer from addiction, because what I found, um, and it was very evident when I got to ARC, uh, so my, my daughter was 15. She had her 16th birthday in ARC. We'd already spent uh, a year of absolute crazy um, with me not knowing, again, what was going on. Counseling wasn't helping. She was taking off. This was different than my older daughter, you know, same kind of there were crazy experiences, but this was it was different because she was really um, completely uh, out of control in my mind. And uh, when I came to ARC, I, I, there was such relief. Like I would do whatever they wanted. I didn't care because I could sleep. I didn't have to worry. I knew she was safe. And um, I was just, I was reading everything I could about addiction. Yet I didn't really believe that my daughter suffered from addiction. Like, I just really thought that she got tied up with the wrong crowd, got introduced to, you know, drugs. And once she was, those drugs were out of her system, I truly believed that everything would be fine. In ARC, I met parents, you know, they call them the old comers or the alumni parents that would talk about, you know, thumbs. stories of their children, you know, not hearing from their from their children for months at a time, uh, children being, you know, incarcerated, in remand, all these crazy stories. And I just thought, oh, my God, how do you even cope with that? Right. That's not me. Right. That's not my child. And uh, four months being in ARC. So we came in actually on February 14th. I told her it was my gift of love. <laughs> and uh, 
the July long weekend, um, the kids were at my house and I woke up to an empty house. So even though we've got alarms on the doors, etc., they had escaped. I was devastated. I felt guilty because I had a newcomer girl. Um, anyway, they were found 24 hours later. And I was told that within that 24 hours, my daughter was, you know, in some seating motel trying to pick crystal meth out of the carpet. Like, I don't even know. It was just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks because it was at that moment that I realized, truly realized that addiction was, was what she suffered from. And that even after four months of being, you know, clean and sober, she went right back to it within 24 hours. So, um, that was a huge punch in the gut and a realization that um, this is not going to be over. This is going to be my life with her. And um, yeah, it was, it was just, it took a lot to wrap my head around that. And, you know, and then you're dealing with your family, not understanding what, what happened. Is it, you know, is it because you got divorced? You know, are, are you're a bad parent? You don't know where your child is you know, do something because, you know, I'm a fixer. My dad is like a fixer. You can just fix things, right? If you've got money, you can fix stuff. And this is not something that, uh, like we can fix, right? It's, um, it truly is a lesson of, um, handing it over to your higher power and trusting in the universe, leaning into love, not leaning into fear, and, and really trusting that things will unfold the way they should. It's been a 13-year journey. The first uh, five years, I would say, were absolute crazy. I was crazy. Uh, and, you know, they often say that the people that love, you know, someone that suffers from addiction, their addiction actually becomes their loved one. Mm-hmm. And I can see that now because as a mom, I especially not knowing what you're dealing with raging against a system that is just unable to support um to support what's going on that there's just not resources there and it's um it's difficult to navigate even now i think it's difficult to navigate but um you know i was running around calgary you know trying to find her in places where i shouldn't be at hours where no one should be out uh trying to close all these doors as other ones are opening up you know like the drug dealers and the the that whole scene is um it's uncontrollable really and so i had to really um get supports. And so I found support through uh, Naranon, Al-Anon, um, those groups, uh, parents empowering parents. And, um, and also really, uh, I'm a very spiritual person. And I leaned into my spirituality in a very big way. I'm not a religious person at all. So initially, the 12 steps, I, I resisted quite a bit. Um, that's par for the course. I think yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. And I relate to some of the guys that come through here too, but I, but really, if you just, if you look at it without the religious component and just, you know, um, 
it definitely, I, I call them steps for living. And I think if everyone followed those steps, we'd be a, a better human race, right? Uh, but it took, a, it took a while. And now uh, where I'm at is my youngest daughter, um, you know, the, I've had bouts where I haven't heard from her for almost a year. I haven't seen her, you know, like months at a time. You don't know what's going on. And um, just, well, a month ago, <laughs> um, she reached out after, you know, it's been months since I'd seen her, and she reached out. Um, she invited my husband and I to her place, and I realized, for dinner, and I realized that it was the first time since she was 16 that I ever knew where she lived. You know, if I would see her, I might drop her here and then she disappears or I wait in, in, you know, the parking lot or on the street and she'd come out of somewhere. Right. I never, ever knew where she lived and she actually invited. So I guess that's a big step. Huge um, step. Yeah. Yeah. I, she says she's on Suboxone. So her, her drug of choice is, uh, is fentanyl and opiates and, um, so she's on Suboxone, she says, I, I want to believe it, obviously. And, um, and she's pregnant. So she's due uh, in February, which is another huge, like, took me a week just to like, not go crazy and figure out how to <laughs> fix that. You know. So did you just learn that pregnancy? Did you just learn about I that just pregnancy? A month ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's do, like, she was already, what, five months yeah. or something. So it's just, it's crazy because, um, you know, what I, I feel, it's hard enough watching your own child or your loved one suffer with this disease. Mm -hmm. And then to know that another innocent soul is coming into this world and will be dependent. I mean, I'm hoping it's just Suboxone, but, mm -hmm. you know, who knows? Um, and what will the effects be and just this whole cycle, right? And what do we do? Like, what do I do as a parent? What am I prepared to do? And so, you know, my husband and I have, have talked about it and uh, we have one child that's at home. So we've talked about it and I, I am, you know, we are prepared to support my daughter in being the best parent she can be, but she needs to be in recovery and she needs to be abstinent. And that's, that's for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and if, if that doesn't happen, then, you know, I, things will play out. And so what does that mean for us? Uh, it depends. I think like, uh, it depends how much time goes by, you know, does she stay in recovery? Does she not stay in recovery? Um, we're kind of gearing up that we would be guardians and, uh, for this child, not what I want as I'm like this close to like we're planning retirement. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but as my husband says, well, you know, there's some really good schools in Cabo <laughs> if it comes to that, you know, but it's like, it's just, uh, you know, I don't know. Like I, I, what I realized is with this disease, it is truly one day at a time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I'm going to feel. I don't know what the outcome will be. I just need to do what feels right for me in the moment and then trust that, you know, the universe will take care of me. And so, 
you know, that's where I'm at. And it's, uh, I've talked to so many people and I, I, um, I, I love talking to families because so many families, they're crazy and they're like, but it's, it's because of the addict, right? Or the person that's suffering. It's not me. I'm not the one that's contributing to this at all. Right. <laughs> and I, and I understand that because that's how I felt. And especially at ARC, when they, when they tell you that you're just as sick as your child, you're like, excuse me, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? No, you could, I could see how you'd easily come out of that a little bit offended. Yeah, just a little bit, right? Yeah, but just it's, a touch. Uh, you can be offended all you like. It's not going to help you. Yeah. And it's not going to help your loved one. And you finally, you know, with me, I, I finally got over it, right? And just decided, okay, well, everything that I've done uh, has not helped and I'm here. So let's try something different. Mm. And, you know, and that's what I, I say to the families that I have an opportunity to meet while I'm working here at Simon House is please reach out and reach out to the supports that, that are there and share and try to um, try to uh, understand and really believe that, you know, it is a family disease and you're affected so regardless of what your loved one is doing you need to find a way to keep yourself centered that's all right um because that vortex of crazy is powerful and you know working the steps or connecting with your spirituality or whatever it is that will bring you recovery that you know we talk about recovery capital for the people that suffer from addiction but you know recovery capital for the people who love those people it's important to keep that strong and in the forefront otherwise that that pull into that that vortex you'll go in there you know you'll get sucked right in and it'll take you down and it's hard to get out you know so i i always say you know just Keep yourself strong and reach out to those supports. And, you know, just as we say to uh, our clients here, it's like, be humble and get your ego out of the way. Get out of your own way because it's about your recovery and your happiness at the end of the day, regardless of what your loved one is or isn't doing. And keeping yourself strong will help your loved one. Because I, I thought, you know, when my, I think with my daughter, if she sees me doing the work, it, it's not going to hurt her. It doesn't mean that it's going to bring her into recovery, but it's certainly not going to hurt. And so, yeah, that's, you know, that's the the message that I bring. And, you know, that's a bit of the journey. It's, um, yeah, it was painful ugly but here i am and now i'm working in it by choice <laughs> because it, it just it means so much to me uh to advocate uh for people to understand what this disease is and it brings out the ugly in people so it's hard to it's hard for people to feel compassionate sometimes it's hard for people to um understand that it's not a moral failing um and you know and and no offense to people that have long-term recovery because i truly believe that they are exceptional and they're the miracles but some of the rhetoric 
And some of the language that they use, I think, can be shaming, you know, when when people relapse. And we know that addiction is chronic Mm. relapsing disease, right? And when when we see people that relapse and I hear from people that have long-term recovery, it's like, well, you know, I guess they're just not ready. Like I cringe a little and I don't know. Cause I'm not like, like I don't suffer from addiction. I suffer, I suffer with it. Right. I <coughs> suffer because of it. But I know when my head goes, you know, like when I heard that she was pregnant and I, I spun around for about a week and was trying to, to, you know, I, it, I went back to my, ways of trying to fix this trying to you know uh manage it and and then i centered myself right did that mean that i wasn't ready for my own recovery no i am but sometimes you know you you there's weakness you know sometimes you just need to feel it to to center yourself back i mean it's being human and i think for people that um that relapse like it's it's super scary i hate hearing about it but i also understand that it's it's part of this disease. And I don't like to say, I, I hate that they would hear, well, I guess you're, you just weren't ready. Are you ready this time? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know what that does to them. I, I but I, that's just my own personal feeling. Um, but uh, yeah, what we do here, I, you know, addiction is such, it, it's so far reaching. It affects so many people. I don't think I, can speak to one person that at the end of the day hasn't been touched by mental health and addictions, right? So the more we can speak about it, the more we can uh, lobby our our governments for funding and get get this treatment and recovery down, um, the better. So, you know, that's why I'm here to do my little part. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The I've, well, what was it a month ago? Maybe I got a tour of the Simon House with yourself and the executive director, and oh, the work that you guys do is is pretty amazing. Um, how inclusive it did feel with, you know, under one roof, the kind of different models you guys are running, depending on the depending on the client, is uh, it's pretty cool how you managed to do that kind of. Well, I'd say under one roof, but it's under three, but one one really. Yeah. One umbrella. Um, yeah, I was, I was quite appreciative of that, but the one thing that I did kind of want to touch on as you're telling your story is, is we've had some clients, um, you know, the biggest void I see, um, in the continuum of care is that is like the lost stages between like 18 and early twenties, right? Like there's so many, there's so many people, you know, I was on the phone the majority of last night trying to deal with an individual in that demographic. And it's like, you know, they're, they're not, they're not children anymore. So mom and dad can't step in legally, but they don't necessarily have the capacity or the knowledge to do it on their own. And it's, they just like, it's, they're just, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And like, it was so frustrating because yeah, like mom, you know, there's no support. Well, for this particular individual, like mom's involved, she's trying to support, but she's limited on like her capacity to support because he's not a minor anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just difficult that, that age range specifically. Um, 
Well, I I would agree with you, but I think even, you know, younger teenagers, which, you know, 14, 15, 16, when my daughter was uh, in the children's hospital, so she had been prescribed um, antidepressants and they obviously didn't suit her. But, you know, you're, you're giving children medications. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, without monitoring the effects and no one is listening to the parent like you know I was desperate at that time so I thought and and there is depression that runs in my family so I thought okay this is you know I'm this is something that could be helped with medication but then when she was raging and then she ended up taking a bunch of those meds with uh, alcohol and it was you know 911 was called. She was in the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. In the psychiatric ward at Children's Hospital. She was only there for, I think, eight or 10 days. And I could see that she was not well, you know, like even though she's under the care, but there were certain mannerisms, you know, like fiddling with her, her cuticles and her finger. Like she was very nervous, right? Almost agitated. And I said that to the doctors. And they were like, no, she's fine. She's going to be released. I think it was day 10. And I said, no, like, I, what am I supposed to do? Like, she's not well. I know she's not well. And I was told that if I wasn't there to pick her up, that she would become a ward of the court or something. And I'm like, what? You know, but it's this is the craziness, right? And then when they become adults, like you said, at 18, it it's difficult. It is difficult to navigate and even if you you can, um, trying to get uh, support from the courts, mm-hmm. that like that is it's almost impossible. Like the child would have to be mentally incapacitated, or outwardly saying they were going to harm others or themselves. Even then, right? we've even then we it's, hit like it's, yeah. Right. I I mean I have a really good friend whose son um, he's he's been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he's, you know, so there's drugs involved as well. Um, When he's on his medication, he is good and then he feels good and then he stops. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he ended up in in the streets of Toronto, wandering around, hit by a car in the hospital. Right. She's going she's trying to to get um, um, like power over him, you know, as as uh, as a parent. And he's like, no, I'm fine. What do you, and, and that's all he has to say, right? I'm fine. I know my name. I know what I'm doing, blah, 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 right? And there's no power. So these people are, are um, left, you know, and with, we say, you know, you can't trust your own thinking. And yet we're trusting their thinking as a yeah. society to do what's best for themselves, right? It's a total paradox and it makes no sense. And that's kind of, you know, with the current political shift i'm 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 supportive of it in the sense that you know um there's been a lot of free passes i guess like the um how can i say this without offending most people um i do believe that people suffering from addiction you know you well here let's pitch it this way so like we've we've heard the Portuguese model referred to hundreds of times within this industry um, of how they've decriminalized um, illicit drug use. And in certain centers, they've cherry picked kind of the words, I think around what that means to decriminalize uh, illicit drugs. 
but the actual package is, is, is very different than what I think it's portrayed in North America. What, what, what the actual, what the actual model is, has not been well represented. I don't believe. So, um, in the sense that, you know, if, if like we had, we had an individual, um, we did a fundraiser in Calgary early in December and we had an individual there that, um, clearly was in a state of crisis. Um, he needed medical intervention. He happened to have a bunch of stolen property on him. Um, clearly it was like either that, or he's got 12 names that Amazon ships to at different addresses, but he was like, he was rolling around like Santa with a sack full of Amazon stuff. Um, and I'm looking at this guy and, uh, and I'm just thinking like, you know, we're, we're looking at our options as he's, as he's overdosing in front of us. Right. And we're like, okay, we, we can call, we can call a EMS, but he's not that bad yet. Like, he, you know, he's, he's, he's in crisis, but he's not on the floor. So they're not going to do anything. I can call the police, but they're not going to do anything. And so we're like, we're left just to sit here and watch this guy suffer and hope that we don't need to Narcan. And in that moment, I'm sitting there going, you know, this is the problem. We should be able to call the police. The guy's in possession of stolen property. And as politically incorrect as it might be to some, I absolutely believe that guy should be sentenced and put in jail. He broke the law. Regardless of the condition he's in, regardless of the the state that he's in, he should be, he, discipline needs to happen. Now, the form that that discipline takes can vary greatly. And this is, again, just my opinion. I don't represent all of our collective journey. Ryan, you can fucking punch me in the head here any minute. <laughs> it's all good. Um, but, like, that guy, specifically, I'm thinking, you know, he's not, because the whole time, like you said, I'm going, dude, you good? And he's like, yeah, I just need to, can you help me get to the door? Like, you physically didn't know where the door that he came in or out of was and couldn't physically get there. And he's like, no, I'm good. Just get me outside. And I'm like, dude, you're not good. Like, and, uh, like literally 50, 50 chance that guy survived that night. And, uh, but in his mind, he's good. Right. And I'm going, you don't have the mental capacity where you're at to determine whether or not you're good. You, you don't, you, 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 you're just not there. Like we won't let, we won't let a kid vote because he doesn't have the mental capacity, but we'll let an 18 year old, um, fentanyl addict determine whether or not they're good to go while they're literally their brain chemistry mm -hmm. isn't in a position that they're are remotely capable of making a responsible decision. So, you know, coming back to the legal system, I'm like, I absolutely advocate for tougher laws on, on drug use, not necessarily the drug use, but the crimes that come with it. So we take that guy and it, but again, it's more than just the justice problem. We need a more full, full circle approach. And I think mm -hmm. that this government that we currently have is, is going down that path where that guy gets to go to jail. He gets sentenced, but he has the option of treatment. Now, like worst case scenario, we've put you in jail for the possession of stolen property. You've at least had, I don't even know what the sentencing with that, whatever, two months to, uh, to kind of clean the system, like you said, but that isn't necessarily enough. Cause like in your daughter's story, four months and right back out to where it was. So what can we do in the meantime? Well, we need to support with programming. We need to support with treatment. We need to support with all of these other things that kind of fall on top of each other. But I think just, 
I think that's the responsibility of society, like recognizing that these people aren't in a position to make responsible decisions for themselves, don't have the capacity to make mm. responsible decisions for themselves. So at some point we need to intervene despite their, you know, air quotes freedoms. I think they're not in a position to make the best decisions. So we intervene in society. We take some control of that. We get them the support they need. And hopefully we integrate them back into society as productive members of society. Um, but just relying on them to like, uh, you know, I, I know you're familiar with it, Priya, and I know Ryan, you, you are right. But to, like to the general public, mm -hmm. you start walking around to that destitute homeless population and you start asking them if they need help. And they're like, no, I'm good. What do you, what do you mean? And it's like, dude, you're, you are not good. Like it's, mm -hmm. It is minus 40 out here and you're wearing Crocs. Like <laughs> you need some support. Nope, nope, I'm good. And it's like, you know, at some point, I think as society, we need to recognize that their, their rights and freedoms as an individual, like they're, they don't have the capacity yeah. to make the right decision. So I think, I don't know how this turned into political shit, but <clears throat> here we are. I think at some point we as society need to intervene and be like, you know what? You don't know what's best for you and no different than a ward of the state. Right. I think there, it's so difficult to prove that. And I've, I've like in my previous role in the seniors housing community, right. We had, I had people, you know, I, I hate like just bizarre mental, like significant mental health issues, but they were capable of bathing themselves and feeding themselves. So they're like, no, they're good. There's nothing we can do. And I'm like, wow. Like yeah. what about the rest of their quality of life? Right. And it's like, no, you know, so I think it's, 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 it's a mental health issue, but um, especially in the world of addiction, like once you start taking that substance, that substance rewires your brain, like your, your chemical thinking creates criminal thinking, like just the, you're not in the right mind to make right choices. And we need to do something about that. Yeah. yeah. I, Completely agree. But, you know, it's a, it seems like a huge task to put on our society, right? Because, <laughs> you know, we, we tend to be very individualistic as well, you know, not like some that, you know, where it's a real community where, you know, a community would watch and a community would um, come together to support rather than judge. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, it's... That's one thing that I think is a huge barrier for parents to trying to help, trying to help their children, you know, and what happens is you just, you're powerless. And I mean, even with peach out orders, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. such a joke. You, you get a peach out order. They, they apprehend your child, put them in, you know, it's eight days or I can't remember how long it was. Eight Sorry, days. maybe just uh, go back to the peach out. What? for the listeners, what exactly that is. That's the, uh, protected, um, what's peach chat again? Protection for children, uh, suffering from addiction, uh, from alcohol and drugs. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Protection yeah. for children. It's an order that you can get. Mm -hmm. And then you register that with, um, the police. And so if your child is like running around, you don't know where they are. They have this peach chat order. So if they happen to find your child, they can actually apprehend the child and take them to um, the facility where they're held 
for I think it's eight days. They they detox. They there's some counseling there, I guess. But I mean, it's eight days. It's mm-hmm. like it's nothing. You have to go to court. You can go to court and ask for an extension. But you know, I and I got an extension once. My child shows up with a lawyer, right? Court appointed lawyer <laughs> to defend why she shouldn't wow. <laughs> have an extension. You know, like it's just the, the resources. It's nuts. It's crazy when you think about it. It is for and, sure. And so you're just this, this revolving door, right? Like I mean, it's when you think about you know the, poli- the the resources that go to this crazy. It's we we should be able to um, redistribute those resources in a better way. Uh, but it's such a it, it's such a huge issue, right? Mental health and addiction is just so big, and um, I just it's a bit overwhelming when you think about the changes that need to happen. Just to our, our how we currently manage things, it's not working. It costs our province almost seven billion dollars a year. You know, that's the cost associated with addiction, mm-hmm. healthcare costs, legal costs, property destruction, destruction, those types of things. It's a lot of money. So when you think about the resources, can we can we allocate those in a better way? You know, let's just put everything aside that we know. Yeah. Can we think about a better way of doing this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's these conversations that are starting that, you know, that direction in a in a different way of doing things because what's been happening for the last decade or even longer obviously isn't working as efficiently as we, we had hoped years ago. But um, it's funny you talk about P Chad and I've, I've talked to a few police officers that I used to work with and, and they've disclosed that, you know, that's the last option on the block that they recommend for youth because you know, the, the, they get there in that group with other troubled youth and they are there for such a short limited time that they just, a lot of times they find better ways to use from other people. They get really good advice from the other youth that are in there. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's more harmful than it is good because mm-hmm. they figure out how not to get caught doing what they're doing or how to use differently or all these different things, right? How it's, to work within the system. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's so many, I don't want to say true. broken it's pieces. True. I but, mean, I, I was, you know, you just, I was desperate at the time. I couldn't mm-hmm. control her at all. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Tie her, like chain her to the house. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, and a single parent and just, um, yeah, it was really a lot of crazy making. For sure. Yeah. And yeah, I know that even, you know, through, through PCHAD, through ARC, uh, she learned a lot of different things, got exposed to a lot of different people. Right. Yeah. I remember the first time she called me or she was, she was in remand and I have quite a good relationship with some of the detectives in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And I remember phoning uh, one of them and I'm like, oh my God, she's like, she's in remand. The people that, that she's like, I'm, I'm thinking what she's going to be exposed to. And he, he looked at me like, Priya, really? Do you know what she's been doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> she, You're talking about the people. She is those people. Right? Yeah, right. It's just like, oh my God, what am I thinking? Like, you're just... <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for all those parents out there, um, and and like I said, it's uh, we we can't repeat this enough. The the majority uh, it's starting to balance out a little bit more, but uh, the, for sure, still the majority, maybe not the vast majority, but the majority of uh, people that we have reaching out are are the loved ones. Um, a lot of the time, parents 
a lot of those people are parents. So, um, what advice would you have on, uh, you know, through your experience, their course action? Cause I know, I know my advice is coming from the, from the opinion of, of the addict, not the person that's been on the other side of that. Right. So, you know, I, I try my best to explain some of the emotions and some of the thoughts and some of the reasons why and, and assure people like it's, it's, this has nothing to do with your failure as a parent or there's, you know, there's nothing you've done wrong. It just, it is what it is. Right. So, um, you know, I, I try to provide some empathy and understanding or an education, I guess, around that, but you know, maybe you could speak a little bit to those parents that are out there listening. Cause I know there's a bunch. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I mentioned some of the support groups that are out there. I think it's really important to connect with other people that are in your situation just to just to talk. I mean, you know, I've got girlfriends that, uh, you know, they don't have someone that suffers from addiction. So I don't really want to talk to them about it. You know, like I'll talk about it, but they don't know what mm-hmm. I'm feeling or what I'm going through, you know some of the things that they say, it's just maybe not helpful. Probably what I would have said before I (laughs) came through this. Right. So I think, um, yeah, not, not a fault of anybody. Right. It's, it's mm -hmm. ignorance is ignorance. Yeah. It's where you're at. It's like, Oh, well I would do this and you must be so angry. (laughs) Angry is not an emotion that I felt with my child. It was so, it was such sadness and, um, just pain because you don't want your child suffering and there's nothing that you can do to help them. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, I always, uh, I, I tried lots of different things, you know, like I, with ARC, it's tough love, change the locks on the door, don't answer their calls. They can't, you know, they can't come around, blah, blah, blah. I've done it all. And at the end of the day, you know, we're here. So I don't think what I'm not going to say one or the other is going to work best. What I'm going to say is you need to do what resonates with you and keeps you grounded and in a happy way. Like I don't, you know, there's lots of people that do things that are making them crazy, right? Because that's what resonates with them. But to keep yourself grounded for me, I, um, I will always connect with my child so I will text her often let her know that uh that we love her that I love her when she does reach out um I will not give her money mm-hmm. but she always knows she had the door is open right and she never has to go without a place to stay or food like I'll buy her food or I'll buy her you know what she needs um but I won't give her money um and i always talk about recovery so i mean i just say well you know you know what you need to do um and we just want to see you happy and healthy and then you know this whole notion and i'm sure lots of people have heard it this detaching with love you know what does that actually mean right because you're a parent it's your child how do you do that right it's uh i've learned to do that I have learned to do that and it came through um, my a strong spiritual connection and really having faith that, um, you know, divine energy, the universe, divine love, whatever you might refer to it, God, um, that they 
will take care of of me and I'm on a path and uh my my daughter is on a path and um you know the universe will be watching out for her just as it watches out for me and whatever the outcome is it is i can't control those things uh but i do have faith that whatever i need to face i'll be able to face mm. because 13 years ago i never thought i could face what i faced today on that path i i would have said okay i'm out like slit the wrist i'm done like there's no way i can endure this but you can and you get the strength and so i say to those people it is a journey i'm not saying you know if you're in the crazy making stage that you you know i i know that that's a, it's a process and some people need to go through it to know that there's life beyond it. You know what I mean? You can't, it's not something you can fast forward. Oh, go from A to B, do this, right? It's different for everybody. But I, I can say, um, you know, get in touch with, with a, a support group. If you have faith, lean into your faith, lean into love, lean away from fear, because uh, fear is what will take you out mm -hmm. for sure and um and don't be afraid to talk about it don't isolate don't feel shame the more we talk about it i think the more uh this whole thing becomes normalized because you know what it kind of is mm -hmm. it's out there everywhere so you know that's the only that's advice like and and i'm available for people that want to call and 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 talk um, there's another group parent for, this is in particular for parents. I know there's other, uh, loved ones, right? But parents empowering parents can help. Um, there's lots of zoom meetings that aren't necessarily, um, uh, Naranon or Al-Anon. They're not 12 step based. They might be smart, re smart recovery based, or they're just, you know, spiritually based, but there's lots of, uh, meetings that people can click connect to not necessarily face-to-face -face, and they're very helpful because you're connecting with your community. People can relate. So I encourage that. I think as importantly as, as the people suffering with the, with the illness too, um, don't, don't do one and done. Like if you, if you, if you do reach out and you do try something, right. And you're like, no, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. Keep going keep going right because uh, uh you know you'll find what works for you you'll find your community you'll find uh you'll find that meeting that you can connect with yeah i agree with that mm -hmm. yeah for sure and we've had some good feedback uh parents empowering parents i've suggested that to a few individuals that have reached out and received good feedback from those meetings so that's you know what we like to put any of these resources we'll try to put them in the footnotes on the episode and anything we can do to help anybody who's out there struggling um because it's hard to navigate. We, we all know that you've talked about it. It's hard to navigate if you are new to this or, you know, just starting out on that journey of supporting somebody who's struggling with addiction or you don't know what you don't know. And if, if we can help navigate that, you know, that's makes things a little easier for everyone. Yeah. So any closing thoughts, I guess we've just kind of gone through it with you, Priya, but I guess, Brian, you've been pretty quiet today. Yeah, no, I think uh, listening to your story, Priya, supporting your daughters and, 
you know, that takes me back to well, and even currently, right. I have a son, he's in his early twenties and he's been struggling with addiction for almost a decade now. And he's in a treatment facility in Alberta here that he checked himself into finally. And, uh, well, when, when we don't break him out and take him to a hockey game, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you nailed, you, you talked about it, how I think for me, it's, it's always waiting for that other shoe to fall. You just know that, you know, it's, it's not a curable disease and, and relapse is part of it. And, uh, you just never, I'm never too sure that, uh, that this is the, this is the one. But uh, I think, you know, that's exactly what you said, right? I, I've learned over the years to how to support him, how I can't fix this for him. And he's on his own journey and it's not my journey. It's uh, I, I'm on my own and uh, I, I just got to pray and believe that the universe or the higher power, whatever he connects with as well is, uh, is guiding him in the right direction. And he's going to start doing the next right thing and I'll be there to support him. And a lot of the things that uh, you've put in place for yourself um, I do that with my son as well. And it, it took a long time. It wasn't easy to do at the start. I know no, that vortex yeah. of crazy you speak of. <laughs> it comes with red and blue lights lots of times. And <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Right? They're my friends. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing your, your journey with us today because it really resonates with me. And I can't imagine how many other parents out there are going through the same thing. I know there's lots, so. Yes. Very yeah, cool. Sadly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you for what you do at the Simon House. Um, another great resource that we've uh, we've had the ability to kind of start building a network with and uh, very appreciative of that. And, and to the listeners, um, you know, as always, if, if, uh, if you want to get in touch with any of our guests, by all means, just reach out to us at uh, OCJ and we'll, we'll be able to get you in contact. So sure. thanks again for coming on Priya. And, and again, thanks for, uh, Thanks for all your service there at uh, Simon House. Great, great resource at Calgary. Well, thank you. And thank you for what you do too with uh, our collective journey. Awesome. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Bye-bye. Bye. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.